Luke chapter 9 is where we will be this morning and finishing our two-part little series here in basic training. And then next Sunday, of course, we'll look at a Christmas text, Christmas Eve. Uh, We're going to take a little break from Luke uh, for Christmas and things related to New Year's. And so this is going to cap us off in a major break point. 950 is a major break point in Luke's gospel. So we'll pick it up sometime later. But this morning we were in Luke chapter 9 and... Our series has been from verse 37 to 50. Last week we covered verses 37 to 45. And this morning we're going to look at verses 46 to 50. So follow along as I read the text. Luke chapter 9 verse 46. An argument arose among them. As to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among all of you is the one who is great. Jesus answered, or excuse me, John answered. Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. This is the word of the living God. No sin is so deeply rooted in our nature. It cleaves to us like our skin. Its roots never entirely die. They are ready at a moment to spring up and exhibit a most pernicious vitality. No sin is so specious and deceitful. It can wear the garb of humility itself. It can lurk in the hearts of the ignorant, the the ungifted, and the poor, as well as in the minds of the great, the learned, and the rich. This is what J.C. Ryle says about the sin of pride. The sin of pride. The sin of pride can take many forms in our lives. It is a chameleon. It, it's a shapeshifter kind of sin. Uh, sometimes people say, oh, I'm struggling with pride. And it's good to try to help them to define a little bit more how that's manifesting itself. Because it's kind of a junk drawer Sin category because it covers so many different kinds of sin. Jerry Bridges writes, one of the problems with pride is that we can see it in others, but not in ourselves. He actually writes that in a book that it's entitled Respectable Sins. And his point in that book is to address various sins that we just kind of go, well, I know it's bad, it's a sin, but I mean, it's not that bad. You know, (laughs) and pride is one of his chapters uh, that he talks about. Stuart Scott, in his booklet entitled From Pride to Humility, which clocks in at about 34 pages, uh, so it's definitely a readable book for you in an afternoon or an hour. Uh, I don't know if you'll make it through the 34 pages in an hour because it is 
so convicting. You'll be slayed, you know, multiple times with conviction, but it's very good. He spends half of it on pride, half of it on humility and the manifestations. If you want a booklet that's going to help you to identify manifestations of pride in your life, this is the one. He seeks to explain pride and work towards a definition. And so this is somewhat of a lengthy quote, but it'll be worth it. Uh, He writes this, quote, When someone is proud, he or she is focused on self. This is a form of self-worship. Prideful people believe that they are or should be the source of what is good, right, and worthy of praise. They also believe that they, by themselves, are or should be the accomplisher of anything that is worthwhile to accomplish, and that they should certainly be the benefactor of all things. In essence, they are believing that all things should be from them, through them, and to them, or for them. Pride is competitive towards others, and especially toward God. Pride wants to be on top. Thomas Watson is quoted to have said, Pride seeks to un-God God. Then he goes on to address those who might think they're off the hook because they have a lot of self-pity. He says, but what about those who are caught up in self-pity, who are self-absorbed with a sense of failure? This too is pride. They are just on the flip side of the pride coin. People who are consumed with self-pity are focusing on their own selves too much. They are not concerned with the glory of God and with being thankful for what good gifts and talents the Lord has given them, but instead are focused on how they think they have gotten a raw deal or how they are not as good as someone else. Self-pitying people desperately want to be good, not for the glory of God, but for themselves. They want to do things for and by their own power and might and for the personal recognition. They want everyone to serve them, like them, and approve of them. When these desires are not fulfilled, a prideful person will become even more inwardly focused and will continue a vicious cycle. The self-focused person who bemoans the fact that he or she is not what they desperately want to be, elevated and esteemed, should not be deceived by thinking they are not proud. Nothing could be further from the truth. To sum it all up, proud people believe that life is all about them their happiness, their accomplishments, and their worth. And that's all a setup to give this definition of pride, which he says, the pride is this, the mindset of self. I mean, that's good in of itself, right? The mindset of self. And he says, it's a master's mindset rather than that of a servant. It's a focus on self and the service of self, self, a pursuit of self-recognition and self-exaltation and a desire to control and use all things for self. I was thinking about this, and I don't know anyone else who said this, but maybe, maybe I stole it, but I don't know it. But I was just thinking, like, pride is an I problem in two ways, right? It is like an I, like, like me, you know, right? Uh, I, first person, singular, pronoun. Uh, but it's also an I problem, like your eyeballs, Because it's an I problem in the sense of me, myself, because it's all about me. It's all about I. Uh, It's also an I problem because it it wrongly sees God, it wrongly sees other people, and it wrongly sees self and perceives them. So pride is an I problem. 
in both sense of both words. So now pride is the very sin that the disciples are manifesting in this passage. We could, we could make a case that the two points we looked at last week are manifestations of their pride as well. But here it really becomes explicit in the disciples. They are consumed with themselves. And really, in these next two accounts that we will look at this morning, these two stories, they show what happens when, when we become the center of attention and the cross of Christ does not become, is no longer the center of attention. Because Christ has just told them the focal point of his ministry is going to be his death. And now they're arguing about themselves. You can notice how these two sections are linked to one another in the phrase, in my name. Verse 48 says that, this child in my name. And then verse 49, someone's casting out demons in your name. So this is a verbal connection for these two passages to go together. To remind you, last week we were looking at four marks of immature disciples so that you might have a strategy for growth in the new year. Last week we considered that immature disciples are lacking faith, right? They, they were depending on their own gifts or themselves. They were not praying uh, to cast out this demon. And Jesus shows them his power and how we need to depend upon God for his power, his strength, his ability. So we lacking faith. We want to grow in trust. Secondly, we looked at how immature disciples are lacking understanding. Jesus tells them about his coming death, but they were not able to understand these things. And we talked about how mature believers are increasingly able to connect the dots in Scripture and see what God is doing based on what God has revealed. Now, they will get there later when they mature in the book of Acts, but they don't see that yet. So we want to grow in our understanding of how the pieces fit together because it helps us in our present circumstances to have hope, have encouragement, to persevere because we know what God is doing in the big picture. Third, this morning, we are going to pick up in verses 46 to 48 and see that immature disciples are lacking humility. And then in verses 49 and 50, immature disciples are lacking unity. So let's first consider our third point of the series, but first point for this morning, immature disciples are lacking humility. And as we pick it up in verse 46, I've got three little sub points here for us on pride and humility. The first is that pride separates. Pride separates. Look at verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. This is very poor timing, right? (laughs) Jesus has just told them, I'm going to die. I'm going to be delivered over. And they're going, all right, who's going to be the greatest? (laughs) This is very, very bad timing. Uh, John MacArthur writes, ironically, while Jesus spoke of his personal suffering, they argued about their personal glory. And we don't know what this sounded like, but maybe they, you know, Peter, James, and John are, are like, Hey, we got to go on the mountain. We got to see the glory of, of the kingdom and of Christ. Where were you guys? Now, of course, they are careful to not mention certain details of what occurred on the mountain, such as falling asleep during the prayer meeting and having to be startled awake. Uh, they would leave that out uh, strategically. Um, you know, maybe the, the other nine are going, well, yeah, they took, he took you guys because, you know, you guys can't be left alone. Without getting in trouble, you know we're go- we're good on our by ourselves, you know. Uh, 
But you guys, you know, you have to be kept close watch on. That's why he's got you so close to him. You know, they're, they're arguing. Who's going to be the greatest? You know, if you compare the other Gospels uh, and, and this instance, if you go to Mark, Mark 9.33, listen to how he gives a little more detail. 9.33 says, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, so this is a, a, a particular house that they spent time in, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. <laughs> so here's the more context for us that Luke doesn't give us. They're in the house and Jesus says, hey guys, what were you guys talking about back there? And they're like, we are nailed to the wall. Uh, I don't want to say, you know, they, they're, they're instantly guilty. They know it, what they've been arguing about. They don't want to bring it up. Well, here, we're just told by Luke that an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. They are self-focused and prideful. Phil Riken says, rather than carrying their crosses, they are still trying to climb to the top of the spiritual ladder. They are ambitious for all the wrong reasons. Now, like, ambition is not a bad thing in and of itself. Like, it's, it wouldn't be a good thing if you were to, you know, if I was to say, like, you know what? I don't really aspire to anything. <laughs> I don't aspire to anything in life. Like, that's not really a good quality. Sometimes a uh, lack of ambition is another way to refer to laziness, right? I, I don't have any plans. I don't have any desires. Like, that's not what we should strive for. Uh, really, the issue with ambition is the motivation behind your ambition. Why are you doing this? What's your why? Right? We could be, you could see someone who is utterly ambitious for their own glory, their own name, their own reputation, and they're very, you know, driven. But, but if someone is very ambitious for the glory of God, and they work hard, and they are successful or whatever, uh, that is a, that, and, and the glory is going to God, that is very praiseworthy to the Lord. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, what are we ambitious for, or who are we ambitious for? Are we seeking to make our names great or Christ's name great? And of course, man, we have mixed motives all over the place with that. And so there are, there are ways where that's all mixed together, where there, there is genuine motivation for Christ to be named. And then sometimes it, we sneak in a little bit and we want a little credit, a little recognition. We have to ask ourselves, am I content to have Christ made much of in my life and achievements and me be forgotten. Listen to the attitude of Diotrephes in 3 John 9. 3 John 9 says, I have written, to, written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. This is, this is how he's known. He likes to be first. He wants to be first place. He's a very ambitious man for recognition. Notice, though, what pride does among a group of believers. It divides them. They are now against one another. It, the text says an argument arose. Their unity is breaking apart. And we get a really, really great uh, teaching lesson on this in James, the book of James. James chapter 4. Maybe you're familiar with this already. I remember the first time that this was really explained to me as it related to personal conflicts, conflict resolution, peacemaking in families, in churches, in personal relationships, in marriages. This just has a, this is a workhorse type passage. 
This is a passage you got to have in your back pocket to help other people, to help yourself first. Uh, you're going to get a lot of mileage out of this. Um, here, James explains to us why we have fights, right? You got some interpersonal conflict? James is going to tell you why. Look at what James 4 says. Verse 1, he asks the question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? I like to ask people this, you know, what do you think? What do you think is the reason for this? And, you know, let them go with the reasons. And then to give them what James says, he says this, here's why there's interpersonal conflict. Is it not this? And his point is, hey guys, it's this, but he's just being nice to you. Hey, don't you think it could be this? (laughs) It is. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Notice all of the words to describe wanting, desire, passions, uh, coveting. God has designed us with a wanter. That's not a bad thing. We want things. Uh, that's That's how we worship. We understand that all of us are worshipers and we cannot help but worship. But the issue is, what are we worshiping? What is the directionality of our worship? And James is trying to help us see that when we fight with other people, when we have arguments, when we say that harsh word, at the core of that, at the root of that, is desires within you to have your way. I don't know what fast food restaurant it is. It's have it your way. You know, it's, that's, that's James 4, have it your way. And that's what the source is of these conflicts. You want something so much that either this person is getting in the way of that or they're preventing you from that or they're not letting you do that. And so there is friction that begins to happen. And of course, this pride, because it's self-focused, it's my desires, it's my wants, it's my will, it's my way, it destroys family unity, it destroys marriage unity, it destroys church unity. And James understands that. And so this is what pride does. Pride separates because it elevates my personal wants and desires above God's glory and what God wants. Another issue about pride that we learn in verse 47 is that it starts in the heart. Now, James is already giving us that idea. It's this desires within us. But it's in the passage that we're looking at as well. Look at verse 47. Luke 9, 47. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. Here's one of those passages that kind of glows neon in the New Testament where we see Jesus' supernatural perception, his omniscience. We know that it wasn't at all times that he had this, uh, but he has here the awareness of what their thoughts are. He's reading their minds. He knows exactly what's happening in their hearts and minds and in ours now as well. Luke chapter five, verse 22 says, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them. Why do you question in your hearts? 
He's, the, he's mind reading. He, he knows what's going on. And John, John's gospel, uh, chapter 2, he's getting quite a following there. People are saying they believe in him. In John 2, um, 24 and 25, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. It's been said that thoughts are speech to God. Thoughts are speech to God, right? You think something and no one else can know what you're saying. Uh, Man, you wonder if we could all read each other's minds, how much we might hate each other. (laughs) I mean, just thinking of the thoughts that just come in your head about other people at times that you just would never want to be made known. Uh, Here, Jesus is very aware of what they're thinking. Their thoughts are speech. Here, though, another point can be noticed, not only Jesus' omniscience, but the, the issue is that this is what they're reasoning in their hearts, right? And it's going to manifest in their arguing among one another with their, with their words and their actions, but it starts in the heart. The root of pride is the heart. Proverbs 4, 23 um, says, guard your heart for from it, from your heart, flow the springs of life or the issues of life. So it's like your, your heart is like this fountainhead where stuff flows down. Like um, you, you, you think about a, a stream and you think upstream or downstream, right? Where, where's the source of this spring? Uh, and, and you go downstream and you, you see what's there, but ultimately you trace it backwards. And it, what James is, or what Proverbs Solomon is saying is everything flows out of your heart, your actions, your speech, your dispositions, it's based on your heart commitments. And Jesus gets that, and he's pointing this out. Uh, of course, Matthew 15, Jesus uh, points to the, the source of the heart as a root of, of all these evil thoughts and actions. When he says in Matthew 15, 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. This is why it's so very helpful when helping another person with whatever the issue is to ask them questions like, what were you wanting? What are you wanting? What are you desiring in this situation? Because those kind of questions, they get at the heart, not just the actions. Now, it's good to ask, what did you do? What did you say? But what were you wanting to get out of this situation? It's good to ask yourself that as you're in the midst of a conflict, you know, maybe with your spouse and you say, what am I really wanting? From this? Like, what am I hoping to gain from using these words or having this sulky attitude because of something they did or I didn't get? What am I hoping to gain out of this? And then to start to see how, what the heart of that is, what the root of that is. That's how we grow. That's how we mature. You think, well, that's a little bit overwhelming, Robert. Am I supposed to be doing that like every time? Like I, I have these sinful thoughts. Like, am I supposed to be repenting? Yes, you're supposed to be repenting of all of that, right? And, and you go, that's a little bit overwhelming, I agree. Our sin is overwhelming, right? But this is what makes the gospel so sweet because each time the Lord reveals your heart to you and you go, oh, I'm so prideful. What am I doing right now? You go, Lord, please forgive me. And thank you for Christ because God does forgive you. He does forgive you again for your sinful, selfish heart. And you go, man, God is so kind to me and I should be kind to this person who doesn't deserve it, because I don't deserve this either. Like, that's what we mean by preaching the gospel to yourself, or that's one aspect of it. 
When you, you're just like, man, I do this all the time. But then you come back to the cross. And that softens you then for this other person to show them great kindness, great love, great deference because you've been shown such love even in that moment. And so we see pride separates. Pride starts in the heart. And so if pride starts in the heart and God knows your heart, here's a good prayer to pray. One, Psalm 139. Psalm 139, the very last two verses. Verses 23 and 24 says, search me. Oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God loves to do that. You should pray for more humility in 2024. Preachers like to joke that, you know, be careful about praying for humility. You know, God loves to answer this prayer. It is for sure in his will for you to grow in humility. But the ways that he helps you grow in humility are manifold. So if you want to grow in maturity, then you must start with dealing with the heart of pride. And so pride separates, pride starts in the heart. And finally, in in this section, pride sees others wrongly. Pride sees others wrongly. Look again at verse 47. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. Jesus is going to help them. He's going to correct them. And so he uses a prop. And they're in a house. Maybe this is one of the disciples' kids. We don't know. But he brings this child, this little child over. And it's near Jesus. And look at verse 48. He said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, among, among you all, is the one who is great. Now, why is it that this illustration, why is it that this prop is so effective that it accomplishes what Jesus wants it to do? Well, in part, it's because of the way that children were perceived and viewed in this culture. Um, they were not highly esteemed. One writer says he, he brings children up because they were at the bottom of the social ladder in the ancient world. They had no rights and were often considered a nuisance. And so Jesus brings this child over and his point is your Your acceptance of this child reflects your acceptance of me, and that reflects your acceptance of the Father, your reception of the Father. We could say it like this. True greatness is measured by your association to Christ and others' association to Christ and the way you perceive that. In other words, Jesus is saying this child is to be accepted and received because he's close to me. He or she is close to me. And so Christians should think of other believers especially in such a way to think, wow, this person is associated with Christ. And so my receiving them is my receiving Christ, is my receiving the Father. Here's someone who is not highly esteemed in the culture, but now because they're associated with Christ, they are, they've become great. Now, Jesus will make other points with children that are different than this. Sometimes he'll, he'll make the point of the child's dependence, right? And how we need to be like children in our dependence upon God and our faith. Here, it's the idea of the association of the child and the reception of the child, which reflects your your, your acceptance of Christ as well. 
And so true greatness then is measured by how you view other people. And so the simple point is that knowing Jesus changes the way you view other people. Darrell Davis, he says, you cannot find in the fellowship of Jesus any no counts. We must never think that any one of Jesus' disciples, however obscure, does not matter. And he gives this principle in verse 48. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. The idea is the way up is down. (laughs) The way up is down. I mean, Jesus loves to upset the cart of cultural norms in the sense of, you know, pursuit of greatness. In Luke 22, verse 26, here's another dispute that rose among them as to which of them was the greatest. And you know what's interesting? It also follows Jesus predicting his death again. And there they are at it, debating who's greatest. In verse 25, Jesus says, And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. Humble service is true greatness. Caring for those who others deem insignificant. Receiving them. One writer says, spiritual wisdom, which equates greatness with humility, is counterintuitive. It is the opposite of the way the world, both secular and religious, thinks. Here's the key when it comes to pride and humility. It all starts with seeing God rightly, which then allows you to see yourself rightly. And then you see others more accurately. This is why we like to emphasize big God theology or a high view of God and a low view of man because it puts us in our place. It puts God in his rightful place and rightly orders us. Like we said, pride is an I problem. It's all about me and it's a problem of perception. So you need the spectacles of scripture then for your I problem so that you see God rightly. You have a big view of God, which humbles you, puts you in your place and then helps you to interact with others as well. You know, pride is a particular problem for immature believers. It's for all believers. I mean, I'm not saying that you grow out of this, but it's especially the case. And, and how do we know that? Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, in the qualifications for elders, Paul writes this in 1, Corinthians, or excuse me, 1 Timothy 3, verse 6. Here's what one of the qualifications for an elder pastor is, he says, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Notice what he's saying. He's saying he shouldn't be a new believer, fresh. Why? Because there's a tendency to being puffed up, to being prideful, to being arrogant that they need to grow in before. And you can compare this with an attitude of a more mature believer. 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. Here's Paul saying, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I'm the greatest sinner you know, Paul's saying. This is a very helpful principle for your home life. If you in your mind think regularly this thought, I am the worst sinner in this house. I'm a worse sinner than all these other people in this home. That will help you tremendously because it will will catch you from saying things like, I can't believe you would do that, right? 
Because you can believe that they could do that. Because you do that yourself. Or you, you could see how your heart would do that as well. So you're just much more gracious, much more patient. And you're going like, Robert, you know, have you been in my house? Like, how did you know this? No, I just know my own heart, okay? And, and, and the scriptures. And, and we have these same problems. We all have these same problems. <laughs> oh, in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Paul says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It's like Paul, I mean, we don't have jars of clay so much, but it's like Paul saying, we have this precious treasure in a McDonald's cup. (laughs) It's like a fast food cup. You know, you don't esteem that very highly. No, it's like a, use it, you get the, the stuff you want in it, and then, you know, just throw it away. You don't like use this over and over and over again. Um, that's, he's like, we're like the McDonald's cup and we have this great glory placed inside. Paul sees himself uh, rightly. <laughs> J.C. Rowell again, he says, of all creatures, none has so little right to be proud as man. And of all men, none ought to be so humble as the Christian. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 12, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. He's talking about these people who are elevating themselves in the church there in Corinth. Philippians 2, 3 and 4. Paul says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Mm. Very difficult. (laughs) We need much grace here for the new year to apply Philippians 2, 3 and 4. We'll actually come back to that in a minute for how Paul develops that a little further. Here's some other passages. James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The way up is down. 1 Peter 5.6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. You know, our path is the same as Christ's path. We are his disciples. Luke is teaching us about discipleship. And so we follow the path of our master. His was humiliation and then exaltation. Ours is the same. Humiliation, humble, humbling ourselves, and then exaltation. Basil, the great sister, said this to him. It is better to be faithful before God than famous before men. Mm. Better to be faithful before God than famous before men. No, it's not. If you get famous before men, that's okay. As long as you are faithful before God, he might have both in your plan, in his plans for you. So how how can you grow more in humility in 2024? Well, there's a number of practical ways. Uh, A pastor I know um, helpfully alliterated these. And so these are great. And I'm just going to borrow his alliteration. And uh, I can't really improve on it too much. Tweaked it a little bit, but not much. Um, here are some ways that you can cultivate humility in the new year. Number one, there's five of them. Ponder Christ. Ponder Christ more. Think about Christ more. If the issue is thinking of yourself too much, 
then focus more on Christ. One uh, well-known pastor is, has, has said this about pride and humility. He says, quote, humble people do not think less of themselves. They just think of themselves less. Get that? Say it again. Humble people do not think less of themselves. They, think ju- they just think of themselves less. His point is, it's not like, oh, I'm such a worm, I'm so bad, mm-hmm. feel bad for me, you know, I can't do anything, you know. That's self-pity, right? That's the beginning, what we started with. Affirm me, affirm, tell me how great I am, oh. you know, and it's just this, you know, the poochie lip, you know, disease, and, uh, and, and, and you want people to come along and affirm and make much of you, right? That's pride. Uh, so don't be like that. It's not like, oh, I'm so bad, but it's just stop thinking about yourself. Start thinking about other people, start thinking about God. Get Christ in your thoughts. And here's where we go back to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2. Philippians 2, we read about how we're not to do things from selfish ambition or rivalry, conceit. And then here's what Paul says right after those verses. Here's the model he gives us. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God, the father. This is a great Christmas text, by the way. This is about the incarnation. This is about the humiliation of Christ and taking on adding humanity to his deity and doing this for our benefit doing this for our salvation, for us and our salvation. And so Paul is saying, you know, what's interesting, Paul's major point is not to defend the deity of Christ. It's actually to teach humility and show Christ a model. But in doing that, he gives us one of the greatest texts on the, the godness of, of, of Christ. His point though is, hey, here's who you look to. Stop looking at yourself. Stop thinking about your own ambition, your own, yourself. Think about Christ. Have this mind in you about, uh, just like Christ had. Mark 10, 45, for the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So we ponder Christ and we, we ponder all that we can about Christ because it, it just helps us to love him more and love others more as a result. Secondly, we, we pray in thankfulness. We pray in thankfulness. You know, pride thinks we are owed something. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you have received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So he's saying everything that you have is a gift from God, is a blessing from God. It's okay to acknowledge the gifts that God has given you. You don't have to deny those things. Of course not. You, but you acknowledge where they came from. Uh, th- that goes for gifts. That goes for finances. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 17. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, 
that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. So, hey, God is giving you the ability, the strength to do this. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 7, Hannah prays in her great prayer. She says, Yahweh makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts. So yeah, there, we have a role to play in that, but it's ultimately God who determines who's exalted, who's brought low. Jeremiah gives us a helpful model for how we should think about thankfulness and boasting. He says in verse 23 of chapter 9, Thus says Yahweh, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares Yahweh. Notice what's happening. He's saying, focus on God. Give thanks to that you know God. That's what you should boast in. That's gonna get your mind off yourself and all of your talents and gifts, and it's going to get them on God and how he supplies these things. So pray in thankfulness. Ponder Christ. Pray in thankfulness. Pursue spiritual disciplines. Getting in the word, prayer, fellowship, Lord's Supper, these kind of things. They, they help us to keep the right perspective. I was thinking of one passage that helps us see this. We should work hard at these spiritual disciplines. But, and Paul understood this and says in 1 Corinthians 10, or sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So Paul's like, man, I'm, I work hard. I pursue what God calls me to pursue. I'm disciplined in it. I beat my body, I make it my slave, but it's God's grace in me. That's what's transforming me. And that's, that's how we pursue spiritual disciplines for the benefit of humility. Also, number four, put your cares upon Jesus. Put your cares upon Jesus. First Peter 5, 6, and 7, we covered this a while back. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Put your cares upon Jesus. And then fifth, pour over the perfections of God and the doctrine of man. So we just, we, we consider who God is and we consider who man is. Job was humbled by the greatness of God's character at the end of the book of Job. Luke chapter 17, I can't wait to get here. Luke chapter 17, verse 10. Or verse nine, does he thank the servant because he, he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Mm. In serving Christ, at the end of the day, we just say, hey, whether I get recognized or not, I was just doing what I was supposed to do. That's the mindset of a slave of God. Jerry Bridges says, pride is the inordinate desire for recognition. What is our attitude when we do a specific job well and don't receive recognition? Are we willing to labor in obscurity, doing our job as unto the Lord? Or do we become disgruntled over the lack of recognition? Now, I think we should encourage one another. We should uh, in what God is doing through them. But what are we going to do when that's lacking in our perspective? And then, of course, we remind ourselves of the doctrine of man. We are clay pots. We looked at that. We're the, 
we have this treasure in something that is much less valuable, so to speak, than the treasure itself. So immature disciples are lacking humility. Immature disciples are lacking humility. And so we want to grow in this. We want to put off pride. It's noticing that it separates, knowing, knowing that it separates, knowing that it comes from our heart, our desires that are inordinate, and knowing that it's a problem with our eyesight. It's a problem with seeing God rightly, with seeing ourselves rightly, and seeing other people rightly. And so here's some ways that we can grow in humility. Next, we want to see that immature disciples are lacking unity. And you're saying, stop, Robert. I've just had enough. You know, my conviction level. You know, don't worry. There's more. You know, there's more for you. Uh, immature disciples are lacking unity. And this leads from the pride that, that's happening. And it's hard to know here with John. You know, John, is he just kind of a little convicted here? Uh, what is his motive? We don't know. There's so much you wish you knew more background about this story. It's so fascinating. Look at what verse 49 says. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. <laughs> is John going like, ooh, this hurts. Uh, hey, so this kind of happened and, you know, or is he still bothered by this? It's hard, hard to know for sure what's going on in John's heart. But either way, here we have a case of friendly fire, friendly fire. We, we want to know more details like, who is this guy? Like, casting out demons successfully in Jesus' name and somehow not associated with the disciples. What? We, we're not given those details, but we just know he's, he's someone who's for Christ. He's been successful at casting out a demon, but he's, he's not associating with the disciples at this point, and they don't want him to continue. It's friendly fire. I was thinking about this. This would be like someone in the Air Force trying to stop someone in the Navy or the Army from fighting the same enemy. And it's like, hey, no, 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 we do that. We're the only ones who can do it. You know, it's like, what? No, we, we have the same enemy. We're on the same team. And, and here's the disciples going, hey, what are you guys doing? Stop it. You know, they're doing it in Jesus' name. You know, only we get to do it. You know, here's the irony. If you know the context, in our first point, the disciples lacking faith, what could they not do? Cast out a demon. And here's this no-name guy, and he's like doing, doing what they can't do, and they're all upset at him. What's, what's going on? You know, it's not working, you know. But this guy's doing it. He's not even associated. What, what's happening here? They're jealous. You know, have you ever felt jealous when someone else in your circle, your sphere, is like a little bit, they're exalted, and you're not? You know, it doesn't really matter if it's something you don't care about. Like, uh, it's not your realm. It's not your hobby. It's not your thing that your identity is attached to. And they're doing great. You're like, yeah, whatever. I don't care. But when it's in your realm, when it's in your thing, your wheelhouse, and they're getting exalted, they're do- you're like, Ugh. you're like hoping for their downfall, you know, secretly in your heart. You know, you know, maybe it's just me, but um, they're getting jealous here. They're, we're the only Christians in the world here. They're, 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 as someone said, they're stricter than Jesus. They're stricter than Jesus. They're being narrow-minded. They have an overly tight exclusivism, sectarian. This can happen today as well. You know, we, we want to exclude some because they don't line up with us on every single issue. You know, maybe you have this conversation, you meet someone, and you're like, oh, are you a Christian? And they're like, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, oh great, great. And you're like, 
are you, are you reformed? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, yeah, I'm reformed. And you're like, all five points? <laughs> and oh, yeah, yeah. And then uh, and they're like, all right, are you cessationist? And they're like, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. All right. Are you, are you pre-millennial? And like, uh-huh. Are you pre-trip? And they're like, no, I'm post-trip. And they're like, oh, I don't want to talk to you anymore. And like, what's up with that, you know? <laughs> they love Jesus too, right? They're in a different group. <laughs> This can be a temptation for us, especially when we love doctrinal precision. We've got a thought out, you know, doctrinal statement. We want to be really careful and precise. We have a thought out philosophy of ministry. And then you see other places that, that don't, or maybe they do, but it's not written down. And it's a little sloppy. Um, and we can have this tendency to want to write them off completely. Um, and uh, and we just, we remember who's on the same team. Now, what I'm, what I'm not saying is... Uh, if there's like false teaching, I mean, we call that out. It also doesn't mean we can't disagree publicly with public platforms, right? Someone writes a book, puts it out there for public consumption. We can say, hey, you know, I disagree with this point. Make that. That's fine. Uh, it needs to be done rightly representing that, that group, that person. Um, you can acknowledge, uh, hey, we, we believe this person's a genuine believer, but we don't agree with this area. That's totally fine to do. Um, but... Uh, here, they're, they're just totally writing the, this guy off. And so, yeah, we want to see other people grow and see things the way we do. Here's what Ryle says. He's so good on this point. He says this, quote, we forget that no church on earth has an absolute mon- monopoly of all wisdom and that people may be, in, may be right in the main without agreeing with us. We must learn to be thankful if sin is opposed and the gospel preached and the devil's kingdom pulled down. Though the work may not be done exactly in the way we like, we must try to believe that men may be true-hearted followers of Jesus Christ, and yet for some wise reason may be kept back from seeing all things in religion just as we do. Above all, we must praise God if souls are converted and Christ is magnified, no matter who the preacher may be and to what church he may belong. And I'm just thankful that, you know, God lets us grow and mature over time, right? I mean, I think all of us could probably say, you know, yeah, I was kind of in a situation at first where, uh, you know, I love these people, but they weren't doing it completely the way I see it now. But I love them and I recognize God's work in them and, and they were a benefit to me at that season. And hey, that's great. You know, we want to have that, that open heartedness. Look at some examples, though, from both the Old and New Testament concerning this. Um, we have some, this kind of mentality comes up a number of times. In Numbers chapter 11, in Numbers chapter 11, verse 29, we have the case of Eldad and Medad. If you're looking for some names uh, for your dogs, you know, uh, Eldad and Medad, verse 29, sorry, verse 26. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, my Lord, Moses, stop them. But Moses said to them, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all Yahweh's people were prophets, 
and that Yahweh would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Wow. So, hey, Moses, you've got to stop these guys. You notice what Jesus, his, his counsel is basically the same. Don't prevent them. Don't stop them. That's what Moses did. He said, don't stop them. We've already seen lots of connections between Jesus and Moses. Here's another one. They're all upset about this. This is just a total footnote point. But what Moses is, his, what he says, I wish that all would be prophets, that all would have the spirit of God. He's hoping for the new covenant, right? What happens in the new covenant? All of God's people have God's spirit dwelling in them, right? This is a unique period where God's spirit his, or his presence is specifically at the temple. Um, and he's saying, hey, wouldn't this be great if like every, every Jew had the spirit of God indwelling them? Like, it's like a foreshadowing of things to come. And, and you know, Joshua can't see that at the time. And so, hey, it's okay. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Or think about Paul. Think about Paul. Maybe this is even a more extreme example. Back to Philippians again. I'm getting a lot of work out of Philippians. Uh, Philippians chapter one. You know, Paul is in prison at this point. Philippians one, verse 15. Paul says, For some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. This is what we're talking about. Envy, rivalry, pride, you know, jealousy. Some are preaching Christ and, and that's their heart motive. Verse, 15, verse 16, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And what, what are they saying? Oh, I don't know. Like, oh man, yeah, no, Paul's in prison, you know. Well, he must have done something. I mean, <laughs> uh, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. I mean, what? Paul, I mean, these are bad shepherds, right? They have bad motivations for ministry. They're in it for the wrong reasons, but they're preaching the gospel. And Paul goes, hey, I can rejoice in that. I can rejoice that they're preaching the true gospel, but they have bad motives. They're doing it. They're trying to hurt me. They're trying to stick it to me while I'm in prison, make it even worse for me. But I rejoice because the gospel's going forth, even from these ill motives. Wow, what a, what a response, so we ought to be slow to identifying people as our enemies. Now, there are some who are our enemies. In the name of Christ, they're, they're proclaiming things and they're false. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about genuine believers who just don't line up exactly the way we do. And yet we love them. You know, we, we pray for them. We would love for them to see things the way we do. But we know we're on the same team um, at the end of the day. The Lord's going to sort it out. Tom Schreiner in his commentary says, we have become too provincial, too sectarian, too divisive, all in the name of truth. Often we end up in conflict with others because of our own egos, for we want to be the center of attention. We want to be noticed and praised. We must follow Jesus as as disciples and crucify our own lusts and desires daily. So Jesus says, for the one who is not against you is for you. Ralph Davis says, these verses are not teaching us a soupy, sentimental ecumenism, but trying to prevent a jealous, narrow provincialism. And finally, I just couldn't let this one go. R. Kent Hughes, this is good. This is really helpful, convicting. He says, the problem is not only ministerial, but congregational. How do we feel when others ascend to positions of responsibility and we do not? Or when someone surpasses us in our ability to lead or teach? Or if someone is honored where we would like to be honored? 
Even more telling, how do we feel when we become aware of such a person's being humbled? Self-importance is a cancerous sin. His point is, hey, when you see this person and they're humbled, they're brought low, are you secretly rejoicing? I confess, I've done that before to my shame. Where, you know, someone, you're like, man, I just, I envy them. And then they kind of, you know, something happens and you're like, okay, maybe they'll get less opportunity. It's like, how wicked is that? What? Terrible. But that's how our hearts go sometimes. And we confess that, we repent of that, and we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand that he may exalt us in the proper time. We want to mature in the new year. Immature disciples are lacking faith, lacking understanding, lacking humility, lacking unity. The ultimate pride is refusing to repent and trust in Christ. So how better to begin the new year than to begin as a new person, to begin with new life and to have have a new heart transformed by Christ. And this is the message of Christmas. It's one of humility, ultimate humility in the person of Christ. And of course, we've read that passage in Philippians 2. 5 to 9. We're just going to read verses 8 and 9 again as we close. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee, should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace, your kindness to us, despite our pride. Lord,